The following program is brought to you by Jack Miller. It's Down to Business with Jack Miller. Forget what they teach you in school. This is real life, not Wall Street, but Main Street. A real show on what's really involved with starting and running a business with all the ups and downs. Our guests will answer your questions and provide you with valuable information. Stay tuned and join in the conversation. When the earth was created, the word came down. Take this world and turn it around. Hello, everyone. This is Jack Miller and my main man, Todd Cohen, on this beautiful... It's our first show, Todd, in 2016. I know. And Very I, exciting. I'm too. going to be... This, I'll tell you, I am super, super excited. I, I, I get excited over every show. My wife says the same thing. She says, every show I'm excited, but this show I'm really more excited than normal. Are you feeling better? You were you were in like a raged panic uh, at the end of I, last year. I, I got over it. You know what happens? I deal with people too much. I right. got over it. But you know why I'm excited about this show? Our first... We have two unbelievable guests. I feel like... We're on the trend-setting, news-making, I don't know if that's the right word, with our first guest. Our, and I'm going to bring him on in a minute. His name's Jeff Shepard. He just wrote an unbelievable book. It's called The Real Watergate Scandal. Uh, Jeff, and he'll give you his background. He was, I believe, the youngest White House fellow. He was one of the, on the Nixon defense team, and I think he's the last living member of the Nixon defense team, who's really led the charge to expose a lot of things that most people don't know about Watergate. I don't know how this this book is going to make a movie or is going to do something, because what he writes in this book just changes the way of thinking of everyone about Watergate and our justice system. It's just unbelievable. So so with that, let's bring on Jeff. Jeff, you with us? I am, Jack. Thank you for having me on. Jeff, I, I really appreciate it. I was so imp- – first of all, to the listeners, your book is a very e- – you're an attorney, but your book is a very easy read. It's not written like a legal brief. It's written like any dope like me can just follow it up, and you have all the supporting background in there. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in history or politics or – justice to go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever and get the real Watergate scandal. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And not only is it a phenomenal book, I think it's a history-making book that's going to change some of the nation's thinking on Watergate. Well, it certainly reveals startlingly uh, uh, interesting truths about what was going on behind the scenes in the Watergate prosecutions. It does, and I want to get into that in in a minute. But first, I want to start with your background. Maybe if you could tell us, and you told me, I asked you the other night, how you first met, because I think this is interesting, and we'll spend a few minutes on it, how you met Richard Nixon when you first met him, and sort of how that led into your um, working at the White House, because I think sure. that's a fascinating story in itself. Sure, Jack. I, uh, I went to Whittier College, uh, grew up in Southern California, went to Whittier College, and uh, I'd just been elected student body president at the end of my junior year, uh, and I won the Richard Nixon Scholarship. It was uh, awarded by the Republican women of Whittier, and it was $250. Uh, and I went to the lunch to get, to, to get the scholarship. And I think to the surprise of everyone, so did Richard Nixon. Uh, he had been vice president and then uh, left politics and was practicing law in New York, but he was out for Whittier's commencement, and so he came to this luncheon. And it was this wonderful opportunity to, to chat with the former vice president about his time at Whittier and, 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 and uh, how much he enjoyed it and, and my time. And he gave a speech. He dropped out of politics at this point. This is 1965. So, 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 
point of reference, he had already uh, had the famous, you know, election with John Kennedy, been on TV and through that whole thing at that point, right? He lost the presidential race in 1960 in a real squeaker to Jack Kennedy. And then he ran for governor in California in 1962 and lost. And he had that very famous press conference where he says, gentlemen, you won't have Nick, Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. This is my last press conference. Wow. So and you... then he moved to New York, joined a big law firm, and was practicing law. <clears throat> so when he came out to this lunch, he wasn't running for anything. There was no press. And he was talking about what Whittier meant to him and what, 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 what impact that college education had on his life. And, and, you know, it was a really fun lunch. I wasn't nervous because I didn't know he was going to be there. But I sat right next to him. We, we chatted, and uh, we went our separate ways. And then two weeks later, the scholarship dean called me and said, you must have made a heck of an impression on the former vice president. He just doubled your scholarship. He sent another $250, and he wants it to be allocated to you. So, I mean, I really had a swollen head at this point. And then I went off to law school right after I graduated from uh, for college. I went to uh, Harvard Law School. Richard Nixon went off and got elected president. And I told my friends at law school on election eve, 1968, if Nixon wins, I'm going to Washington to help. So uh, uh, I applied for a White House fellowship. Uh, uh, I, I won. I was selected. I was uh, among the youngest White House fellows ever selected. And I joined the Nixon White House staff at the tender age of 24. I stayed for five full years. I worked on the domestic council uh, after the, my fellowship year. And I, I, I worked on uh, law and order issues for the president. So when water, things looked really good, Jack. I mean, I was, really, I was really going. And then Watergate came along. And Watergate ruined everything. Uh, uh, people were, you know, resigning in disgrace and, and, and being indicted. And I went down to the president's top lawyer and said, I want to help. I want to be on the defense team. And, and uh, it, it, it took a couple meetings before he, uh, uh, he started giving me stuff to do. And I became uh, his principal deputy in the Watergate defense. So I, I don't want your listeners to think I was making the decisions. Uh, this is when I was 28 or 29 years old. But I was in the room when the whole thing came down. And I knew, since I, uh, my public policy beat was the Department of Justice, I knew and worked with every single major Watergate figure. These are not names to me. These are real people. It's, al it's almost like extended family uh, and, 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 uh, of what was going on. Do you still speak to any of those players today? Well, in fact, I run, I arrange and host an annual reunion of the policy planning people on Richard Nixon's White House staff. This would be the domestic council staffers, the National Security Council staffers, and the people that worked for the Office of Management and Budget. Some of those people still come, uh, but not, uh, not uh, I like to say it's the group that didn't go to jail. Right. Uh, but we're the only White House staff that gathers annually. We do it every November after the election to talk about public policy issues. And you're in California now for the birthday celebration of That's Nixon. That's correct. His birthday is this Saturday, January 9th, uh, at the Nixon Library, and I'll be there. But as importantly to me, tomorrow, Friday, I'm speaking to the, to the Republican women of Whittier. These, these same, I don't know that it's the same ladies, 
but the same group that gave me that scholarship 50 years ago that so changed my life. Well, if they, if they bring him in with oxygen tanks and walkers, they could be the same ones. <laughs> no, I, right. no, I'm teasing you. I, I want st- to get to the book, but a, a couple more questions on Nixon because I'm just fascinated by him. And I asked you these in all candor the other day. What was Nixon like as – and I asked you this. I know the answer. What, I asked you, what was Nixon like as a person? Uh, did you have a relationship with him? And maybe you could just tell me the same thing you told me the other day. Absolutely. The only personal conversation I ever had with President Nixon was in 1965 when we had that lunch. I was on his staff for over five years. I wrote hundreds of memos – analytical work for him to review, but we never chit-chatted. It was all work, all the time. Nixon did not believe in personal salesmanship. He didn't like glad-handing, and frankly, he found it very hard to say no to people face-to-face. So the meetings that we had, and I ran a lot of meetings for him in the cabinet room and in the Oval Office, were for him to gather information. I'd bring people in we would talk about some, some issue, and then we would, we would go away and I would submit an analysis in writing for him to make decisions. But he would, he would not shoot the breeze with, with uh, uh, very many people. It was only three or four people that he was really close to where he could kick around ideas. The rest of it, he was like, he was like a judge. He wanted to see the arguments in writing and separate out personal advocacy. Now, I mean, I don't blame him. He didn't care what I thought. My job was to analyze issues and tell him what people whose opinion he respected thought. And I was very good at that. Did you have a relationship with Henry Kissinger? Uh, A very brief relationship with Henry Kissinger. Uh, I worked for John Ehrlichman on John Ehrlichman's staff. And since I did the law and order issue, I was the relationship guy with the D.C. chief of police. And Ehrlichman introduced me to Kissinger uh, one time in the West Wing, and he said, Henry, you you need to know, Jeff, because these starlets you're dating and this nightlife you lead, someday you're going to need to call Jeff and get his help. (laughs) And we all chuckled over that. Now, just Tuesday of this week, the other thing that I do, I help to produce what are called Nixon Legacy Forums which are documentaries co-sponsored with the National Archives on Nixon's various public policy initiatives. And just Tuesday of this week, we were in New York City interviewing Henry Kissinger. Uh, He's 94. We did the second interview. We're going to come back for one or two more. Uh, And it will be, when, when we have that set done, it will be the 36th Nixon Legacy Forum that I've produced. That's amazing. Was, was Nixon a genius? Nixon was extraordinarily adept at deep analysis. He wasn't a sparklingly quick person uh, uh, that, that were, 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 uh, people say, oh, you know, what a brilliant guy. Nixon was a deep thinker. I, I, I think it's fair to compare him to Einstein. Uh, not a sparkling wit, uh, uh, not the, the great uh, innuendo guy. But as Dave Gergen had said, Dave worked on the Nixon White House staff and then for three other presidents, Nixon thought in blocks of 25 years. He thought about what was being done 25 years ago, what the decision today, how it would impact 25 years out. He's the only president that set aside time to think 
uh, every afternoon he had an hour or two freed on his schedule to go over to his hideaway office in the old executive office building and think about issues and, and kick them around with, with a few people. But it was this deep analysis that was, was uh, the, the, uh, the so startlingly uh, different about Nixon. Uh, we, we, in these interviews with Kissinger, we talk about the golden age of diplomacy. Uh, uh, and, and Henry's very kind to Nixon. He points out that, that Nixon brought the political analysis and that Kissinger brought the historic analysis and, and the, the teamwork that they had together on all of these unbelievable foreign affairs accomplishments. I mean, you know, the opening of China, detente with the Soviet Union, ending the Vietnam War with the Paris Peace Accords, and uh, the geopolitics of the Middle East. I mean, it's just it's an astonishing record of success in foreign affairs. And I, of course, worked with him on the domestic affairs, and, and it's, that's, that is not as appreciated, his victories there, uh, but historians are starting to come around to, to saying that Nixon was one of the most innovative and creative presidents we've had. We only have two minutes before we have to take our first break. I can't believe it went by so fast. But what was it like, the, the, the personal pressure of working at the White House during the Watergate years? I imagine it must have been like a pressure cooker, an intense, I don't even know how well, to yeah. describe it. Uh, and you have to compare that with, with what it was like before Watergate because it was, you know, it's an honor. Uh, I'd, I'd park when I had a parking space. Pretty, I was pretty junior, so my parking space was much closer to the uh, Washington Monument than to the uh, uh, White House. And I'd walk into work, and I would say, every morning, you're going to work for the president of the most powerful nation the world has ever known. You know, you owe so much, and this is such a fantastic opportunity. Let's make, let's make today count. I and mean, I you... was single, I was young, and I happily worked 14-hour uh, uh, days. No problem whatsoever. And, and, and I didn't have a political point of view. My, my goal was to allow the president to make a decision that he wanted. I wasn't there to impose my views. And it, it worked out. People, people didn't see me as, uh, as trying to put over one point of view or another. And then when, when Watergate came, you got into what we, what we called the bunker mentality. Uh, you were surrounded uh, your enemies were, were uh, uh, on, on every front. It's like wartime. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, with the, 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 the analogy, if I could, Jack, sure. the analogy was when a hand grenade came in to the bunker, you just threw it back out. You didn't matter which direction you threw it. Survival. Because you were surrounded by enemies. Okay, let's. Uh, we got to take a break with that. When I get back, I want to focus in on the newly discovered facts, and these are facts that you bring out in the book. Stick with us, everyone, and this is just an unbelievably riveting interview. Uh, we'll be back in two minutes. Don't turn that dial. We will be right back. Are you tired of dealing with unreliable banks and brokers who charge upfront fees and never deliver on their promises? You don't have to. Gelt Financial Corporation has been in business since 1989 and offers a stated income loan program for non-owner-occupied residential and commercial real estate investors. No tax returns required. What are you waiting for? Call Gelt Financial right now at 561-221-0900. Again, that's 561-221-0900. 561-221-0900. 
Did you invest in a non-liquid real estate partnership? Do you want and need liquidity? There's finally an answer. Quick Liquidity is a direct buyer of real estate minority interest and tenants in common investments across the country. To find out if we would buy your non-liquid investment, call us at 561-221-0881 or visit us at quickliquidity.com. That's quickliquidity.com. If you're buying, selling, or investing in real estate, call attorney Dan Kaskow, 561-237-6822. Mr. Kaskow is board certified by the Florida Bar as an expert in real estate law. He's been practicing law for more than 20 years and is a partner in the law firm of Sachs Sachs Kaplan with offices in Boca Raton and Tallahassee. Dan Kaskow handles real estate, corporate, condominium, and homeowner association matters throughout Florida. From residential purchases and sales, bulk buying and selling of condominium units, to purchases and sales of commercial properties, contact attorney Dan Kaskow at 561-237-6822 for your real estate, corporate, and community association legal needs. Attorney Dan Kaskow, 561-237-6822. Not attorney spokesperson for attorney Dan Cascal. You're locked into 880 The Biz. South Florida's only business talk station. 880 The Biz. Where money talks. Welcome back to It's Down to Business with Jack Miller. Call us at 305 541 2350. Follow us on Facebook at Jack Miller Down to Business or on Twitter at HJackMiller1. You have chances to serve much more than you grab the ring on the merry-go-round. Hello, everyone. This is ja- a very super excited Jack Miller with Todd Cohen looking sharp. And we have on the phone an unbelievable historical figure by the name of Jeff Shepard. Jeff, thanks for sticking it out on the commercial break with us. Happy to be back with you, Jack. Jeff, before we get too far, I know you have a website uh, about, uh, it's about everything, but it's, it really focuses on this book, the, the Real Watergate Scandal, and you wrote another book about Nixon. Could you give out the web address and your contact information to help people go out and buy this book today? Sure, Jack. It's www.jeffshepard.com. But, of course, my name is spelled differently. It's G-E-O-F-F-S-H-E-P-A-R-D.com. And it's got the most recent book. It's got a whole bunch of Watergate essays. But it also has links to all of those Nixon legacy forums that I've produced uh, since 2010. It's, uh, and and there's, there's links there to buy the book online or to tell you where to, where to go. Uh, and, and other aspects of the book if you want to get into more of the Watergate research. So, Jeff, let's jump right into the book. You, my, un, you're, you're a Harvard lawyer, so I have no law degree. I know nothing. But it seems to me that you are really um, debunking all of what I thought I knew about Watergate and that the Nixon and his senior staff did not get a fair justice system trial in the media, in the court, um, and really they were railroaded by um, political and judicial forces. Well, that's what I've uncovered, and that's what's so startling, is that the judges and the prosecutors 
were getting together in secret before the trial to work things out amongst themselves. And you don't know which is the bigger surprise, that they were getting together, which, of course, they absolutely cannot do. It's absolutely forbidden. These are called ex parte meetings. Or that one of the special prosecutors was writing memos to his file about the secret agreements they were making. And those memos I have come across, they were, they were uh, at National Archives, and I uncovered them. I'm the first person to see them and to appreciate what they meant. And, and they're in the book. produced in the back of the book. Yeah, they're in the book. So, Jeff, if you could list the – I'll use the word improprieties because it, when I read the book in my unpolitical, just regular Joe, Joe guy, American guy, I almost seem that this was like a political coup d'etat to throw out the president. And I'm not saying there weren't crimes committed, but at a different level than what I think the nation thinks. Maybe if you can go and just list – Point by point, we only have you know another fifteen minutes or so left, so right. it, could, it could go on for days. Just point by point, the improprieties and the setup, because it almost seems like they got together beforehand and said, "Hey, we're going to make it look this way. We're going to do this. We're going to do that." Um, well, here's here's how we could do it in brief. We, you put your finger on it. I fully admit there were real crimes committed by real people, uh, but I believe, and I think the record shows. They were committed by mid-level people, and when uh, when the, uh, the and then there was a cover-up, and we, we all understand there was a cover-up, and that's what made it so bad. But my my belief, based on all of my research, is the cover-up was run by middle-level people, and then when they got caught, and they should have gotten caught, they decided that the way out to cover their own tail to get out was to become part of the prosecution, and to help the prosecution to get the higher-ups. The prosecution didn't care about the mid-level people. What they wanted was the senior people. They wanted Nixon and his top aides. And the evidence was very, very slight. So what happened, this group, the special prosecutor's staff, which is specifically recruited to get Nixon, they decide to cut corners in order to get the top people they want to get. And that's, that's, what, the book, that's what the book describes. And it's, it's really in two parts. It's how they cheated in the Watergate trials and how they cheated with regard to Richard Nixon, who never came to trial. And, and what it shows, and, and, and just with regard to Richard Nixon, it shows that they secretly assured the grand jurors, who promptly named Nixon a co-conspirator, and they secretly assured the House Judiciary staff, who promptly recommended Nixon's impeachment, that Nixon had personally approved the payment of blackmail. And the records, the, the memos that I've uncovered, show this is what they were representing. We didn't know it. We didn't know that was being asserted at the time, so we couldn't refute it. And Nixon, in my view, personal view, others could differ, Nixon would never have quit if he had known that was the allegation because he knew he hadn't done that. And it just got it got washed out with his resignation. Then you go to the actual cover-up trials, which occurred after Nixon had resigned, and there's all kinds of due process violations where they they didn't even come close to getting a fair trial. The the judge was biased. The prosecutors were hiding uh, what we call exculpatory evidence. They were they falsely sentenced uh, his his principal accusers, John Dean and Jeb Magruder. 
to harsh prison sentences to increase their juror credibility. And then a week after the trial was over, uh, they, they, the, the judge reduced their sentences to time served. So John Dean, who's the president's principal accuser, who was sentenced to one to four years in prison for his role in running the cover-up, turns out he only spent four months in confinement, and he never spent a single night in a jail cell. He was shoved into a witness protection program. He spent his nights at a military base, and they was driven in the day to go down to his dedicated office with the special prosecutors where he worked on his book. And the American public wasn't told that. They were told an entirely different story. Is there specific reasons you could point to that you would say Nixon seemed to be railroaded? I mean, was it because he was more of like an everyman type of president? He didn't come from like a, a wealthy, high-profile family like so many people did? Uh, or, or do you think it was like a sign of the volatile times? He was president where he may have rocked some boats or a lot of boats were just being rocked in general with Vietnam and it, civil it, it, rights. It was, and it was actually both. You put your finger on it. Nixon, in every sense of the term, was a commoner. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't come from a prominent family. Uh, he wasn't movie star handsome. And he didn't have the benefit of an Ivy League education. He was not part of the Eastern liberal establishment. But early in his congressional career in 1948, he took down Alger Hiss, who was part of the Eastern liberal establishment, and they hated each other ever since. I mean, the, the, the Eastern liberals just loathed Richard Nixon. So poli- he returned it in kind. Politics as usual. Absolutely. So when he, uh, you know, the, the phrase he told David Frost in the interviews, I gave them the sword. There was an opening after he'd been reelected with this Watergate stuff. And they just ran with it and ran all over him. Now, it was tumultuous times. The Vietnam War and, and the unrest of the late 1960s, uh, we still haven't recovered from. And, and Nixon was elected uh, mainly because the Democratic Party blew up. And Nixon's job was to end that war. And once he was president, everybody turned on him, all the Democrats and all the Congress. And, and they said, well, you know, it's, it's your war. It's your problem. There were 537,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam when Nixon was inaugurated, and there were less than 250 when he was reelected in 1972. But everybody blames Nixon as though it was his war. An amazing story. Could you talk a little bit about the smoking gun tape, how it's been misunderstood, and your role with it? Because that's probably one of the most famous, you know, Watergate. One of the most astonishing reversals uh, uh, that you can imagine. The smoking gun tape, to, for, for the audience, uh, is a tape of a conversation of June 23rd, 1972, just six days after the Watergate break-in. Uh, burglars are arrested. And on the tape, they, uh, Haldeman comes in and says this investigation, the FBI investigation, is going in, in a new direction. We don't want it to go in. And John Dean thinks the way to get it to head it off, to, to, to prevent them interviewing these two witnesses, is to get the CIA to tell the FBI that they shouldn't go interview these. And, and, and they did that. Uh, uh, and we knew it. We didn't, we didn't know Nixon was involved in it, but we knew there was an effort to get the CIA not to interview two guys, and it postponed their interviews for eight or ten days. Uh, but what happened was after the Supreme Court said Nixon had to release his tapes, we on the prosecution team, on the defense team, heard that tape for the first time 
after the Supreme Court decision, and we concluded that it was open and shut evidence of obstruction of justice. And really early on, starting six days after the break-in, we demanded of the president that it be released. And when it was released on August 5th, Nixon's uh, uh, remaining support evaporated. He resigned three days later. And everybody concluded that, that he had been in on the cover-up from the very get-go. It was a huge surprise to us because we were trying to defend him from a much, much later point of view. And it turns out every single person involved in those conversations and those interpretations were dead wrong. The effort on those two witnesses was to protect two Democratic donors who had contributed to the president's campaign in secret on the absolute assurance that their names would never become public because they were prominent Democrats, and the FBI's interview would expose them. It had nothing to do with covering up Watergate. It was trying to protect Democratic donors. You don't have to take my word for it, although it's astonishing. In John Dean's recent book, there's a footnote at page 54, and he says the same exact thing. He's finally gotten around to saying it. I mean, it was his idea it's unbelievable. the CIA to get the FBI. So and, for and he says, you know, if, if Nixon's lawyers hadn't misunderstood, Nixon needn't have resigned, and he might have lived again to fight another day. These are John Dean's words. In short, the smoking gun was shooting blanks. So for all these years, everyone's had a, a false a misunderstanding of what the smoking gun tape has been. Well, me, me, and, me in the forefront, I, I, I'm the one who transcribed it. I'm the one that named it the smoking Unbelievable. gun. I was keen off Fred Bazart's horrified reaction to hearing this tape, and, and we were just all wrong. I have a 27-page essay on this in, on my website. Jeff? Uh, uh, it, it, it is just, it's one of the most astonishing things about Watergate. We're, we're going to have to have you back. back. we got to go. What's your website again? Because I want everyone to go there. Because this is just unbelievable. www.jeffshepard.com And I would encourage everyone to go out and get the real Watergate scandal today. Jeff, thank you very much, and you are just unbelievable. Thank Fascinating. You. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Thanks, Jeff. Everyone will be back in a few minutes. Thank you.